to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Good to meet you. My name is Stephen. If I didn't meet you on the way in, I believe pastor here, and I would love uh, to get to know you a little bit better. You'll look in your seat. You'll find a blue connection card. That's a great way for us to get in contact with you. There's a few ways to, uh, to for us to do so. So just fill out that card, and you can take it to the back table in the back after the service is over, and we'll exchange that card for a $5 gift card to Third Cliff Bakery. And so that's a great bakery just down the road. It's our gift to you as a thank you for being here. We'll also follow up via email this week, and there will be a list of charities and in that email, uh, and, that, and we would love for you to respond to that email. Let us know which one you would like for us to make a donation to. This is just our thank you for you being here. So take that card and take it to the back uh, after the service. Our values as a church are the gospel, community, and mission. Gospel means good news. We were once separated from God because of our sin, for our sinful choices and actions, our sinful hearts, and, uh, and God made a way for us to return through the work of Jesus. God gave his very own son to die in our place, to die for the sins that we deserved, to die for, and gives us new life in Christ through the resurrection. So for anyone who places their trust in what Jesus has done alone, you can be saved. So if you've not done that, come find me after the service. I'll be in the back. would love to walk with you through how to do so, how to enter into that relationship. Secondly, community. God created us for relationships. Um, He created us to to enjoy one another in relationships, regardless of our background, of our cultures. And we do this in community groups. We get together in smaller groups during the week, uh, six to 12 people who encourage one another, who study the Bible together, and then also learn uh, how to love and serve our neighbors. If you're not connected to a community group, there's a yellow card in your seat. Just mark community groups and drop that in the back as well. And then lastly, mission. God invites us to join him on mission. And so we uh, do this through uh, telling others about what Christ has done for us, uh, about, about what Jesus, sharing the gospel, but also living lives shaped by the gospel. So we love and serve our neighbors. We got to do this last week. One of our partner, uh, in, partners in the neighborhood, uh, English High School, we served with their ESL program. And we're able to do a walking taco night. So several people, uh, you know, Ms. and Darren and some other people got to, uh, to be a part of that. Big thank you to Mark Lee, who led out on that project. John was helping with that too. But Mark, incredible job uh, getting that set up. It was a walking taco, which I've never seen in my life. It's just a bag of like Fritos with taco stuff in it. It works. I don't know, but it was great. We were able to serve over 200 students and their families, and so it was a really great time uh, to be together for that. So uh, we have plenty of ways to serve in that way. A couple of announcements before we get into the text today. First of all, we're having a baptism class right after the service. So if you're interested in baptism, um, there is uh, right out this door, down the hall to the library, we're meeting after the service. Uh, we got to celebrate uh, two baptisms a few weeks ago. It's such a joy to experience this picture of new life. So if you've not been baptized or you're interested in following Jesus and want to know what this next step looks like, join me in there after the service and we'll talk about what that looks like. Uh, secondly, this is kind of for, uh, for our members. Uh, if you're a covenant member of City on a Hill, we have our next members meeting on uh, November 13th that evening. It's a potluck, so be sure to sign up through our event page, coahforesthills.org slash events. If you're interested in membership, we have another membership class coming up soon. Uh, And then as we uh, think about mission, I I do want to highlight one of our partners. Um, We're trying to do a better job of highlighting the ways that we serve on mission as a church. And one of these is through uh, something we call Plant Iceland. We are committed to not just local missions, but global missions. And uh, Plant, the Iceland Project, sorry, the Iceland Project, not Plant Iceland, 
the Iceland Project is uh, an incredible work of God. About six, seven years ago, there was a study done uh, where they were not able to find a single person under the age of 25 in Iceland who believed that God created the world. Uh, At one point, there were less than 1,000 Christians in a country of over 300,000 people. And so uh, a man named Gunnar Gunnarsson, which is the most Icelandic name ever, uh, sounds like the villain in Mighty Ducks 2, if you remember that movie, Um, uh, he actually got saved in a grocery store listening to a sermon podcast, no lie. He went home, shared the gospel with his wife, she got saved, and then they began to actually pray about starting a Bible study, which moved into a church planning movement in Iceland. And so we are committed as a church to giving 1% of our internal giving. Anything that comes in through on a Sunday morning and comes in online goes directly to the Iceland project. And so as we do this, um, we are praying as a church for how do we better engage? How, so every dollar you give, part of it goes towards that, but also how do we actually go? So hopefully in the next year or so, we will actually be sending a team to Iceland, to Reykjavik, to work uh, directly with a church plant. We have teams that come and serve us. So we get the opportunity to do the same. And so uh, we're going to be highlighting this and, and you know, local church planning, foster care and adoption in the coming weeks, and kind of begin to do this on a rotation so that you know all the ways that God is at work in and through our church, but also how you can get involved more with those things. So I'm going to pray for Iceland, uh, and then we're going to jump into our text this morning. Lord, we thank you for all the work that you're doing through the Iceland Project, through Gunnar, and through the, all the other churches in Reykjavik, and, and Selfoss, and all around uh, Iceland, Lord. Uh, we see so, there's such need, gospel need in that country, Lord, and we pray that uh, through the work of your local church, through the power of the gospel, through church planting and disciple making, Lord, that we would see the gospel go forward, that one day we would be able to look and see how you have worked uh, through the faithfulness of your people. And so, God, we pray as City on a Hill, that you would help us to come alongside uh, the Iceland project and, uh, and, to, and to help them hold the rope, help be an encouragement, help to give financial support, to go and be a, a life-giving blessing as we send teams there, Lord. But we just pray for, for the coming years of ministry and partnership, God, that you would bear much fruit through that. So God, we as your people, we ask your spirit to move, not just among us, but among our brothers and sisters in Iceland as they gather today. And so Lord, we pray these things in your good and holy name. Amen. Now, this morning, we're going to be looking at a genealogy. Now, I know that doesn't sound very exciting, uh, but we are people who actually really love this stuff. My grandma was into researching family trees way before it was cool. So I remember like in the mid-90s, the early 90s, grandma was looking at newspapers and articles and history books and was trying to trace our family tree back as far as she could. She actually traced my grandfather's side all the way back to Ireland, and we're connected to some sort of Gaelic royalty. And so it's, it's pretty, pretty wild to look at. And so she was able to trace our family tree back. And she, this is way before like, you know, Ancestry.com and all these things. She looked like a crazy person. They were like the conspiracy theorists with strings and newspaper articles all over the place, wild hair. Uh, but in the last 25 years, family trees and ancestry has exploded. Um, there's all sorts of websites. You can actually d- download a family tree website or uh, app on your phone. Uh, but we've g- had such interest in this. And I know for some, this is a point of pain, um, especially for black Americans who were uh, in, in the horror of slavery. Many are not able to go back but a couple of generations. But now more than ever, people are getting interested in this. And through the advent of things like 23andMe, people, even if they're not able to trace back or at least able to look at their history and say, where did I come from? What, what, is, what is my blood? What is my ethnicity? Who, who am I? But, but why do we have this urge to look back? Why do we have this urge to remember and understand who we are? And the reason is, is it gives us a sense of place. 
gives us a sense of meaning, a, a, sense, of, a sense of purpose, a, a sense of, of rootedness. It, it tells us who we are. And if anybody's ever done one of these 23andMe studies, you look and go, man, I did not even know that this was a part of my family history. And Christianity, instead of seeking to flatten those ethnic differences, actually vivifies those differences. It doesn't flatten the fact that we're made different. It actually, um, it actually highlights them. It vivifies them. It shows their beauty. The fact that you know, if, you, if you become a Christian, you don't stop being Haitian. You know, God, God works in the midst of that. You don't stop being Asian or, or Korean. You don't stop being Irish or Italian. You don't stop being those things. God actually designed you in that way and, and is glorified through you living out who he created you to be. And in Genesis, we see this story of a genealogy and a story of how God blesses all people through one family. And this family's line ends up being a blessing to all people. And so this diversity that we look at is actually, um, this diversity of culture or language isn't a design flaw. It's actually built in. It's not a product of people not being able to get along. But if you look at Adam and Eve, our first parents, they would have had all the genetic material possible for every people group on the planet. And they would have ended up spreading out. And actually, a beautiful picture of the creation mandate is that there would be end up being a diversity of culture, a diversity of language, a diversity of, of heritage in such a way that shows the beauty of God. So truly cultivating the world, and it was actually seeing this diversification. And we see this beginning in Genesis chapter 5. Now, there are not a lot of sermons on Genesis 5. This was actually a very hard passage to, uh, to, uh, to wrestle with and to make a sermon from. And I actually think that's a shame because there's some really good principles that we can draw from this genealogy. And so let's dig in together into this genealogy. And first thing we see is that genealogies call us back to why we are here. They call us back to why we exist. And if you look at verse 1, it says, this is the book of the generation of Adam when God created man. And so we see in this a call back to creation. God calls us back to remember that he created us through a common ancestor, through Adam, the first created person, and that this is his line along with Eve. And the Bible often does this. The Bible often roots us in who we are. It calls us back to a common heritage. You see this with the people of Israel, with the Hebrew people, who are called constantly back to be reminded that they are the people of, of the God of Isaac and Abraham and Jacob. They're being reminded constantly that they're drawn out of Egypt, out of slavery. They're reminded of these things to be reminded of God's faithfulness, that God is faithful and that he remembers his promises but it's also to remind them that God created them, and when he created them, he created them to be good. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. We were created to be good. Creation is a good thing. When God created all things, he said that they were good. When he created people, he saw us and said that we are very good. We're created to be very good. And now, as morally messed up as we can be as people... We're not morally pure, but we are created good. We're created in the likeness of God, meaning that we have worth and purpose and dignity and value. And in this, we have a responsibility before God in the world to love and serve our neighbors and to make this the best place possible to the glory of God. We're, we're called in this likeness. We also see in verse 2, male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And, then we, and so we see the dignity of both men and women rooted in creation. 
We talked about last week or two weeks ago before our retreat, we talked about how when Cain took upon two wives, this is not being saying you should do this. It's not prescriptive. It's descriptive of human brokenness. This was actually an aberration of what God designed for marriage between a man and a woman and actually saw him abusing two women. And here, right in chapter five, there's a callback and a reminder to how God created us as equals. That while genders are distinct and we're created as male and we're created as female, there's something beautiful and uniquely distinct about being male, something beautiful and uniquely distinct about being female, but there's an equality saying that they were called man. This is completely different than any other worldview in the ancient world where women were often treated as property, but here God is saying both men and women are equally valuable before the eyes of God. We also see God's faithfulness to Adam and Eve. You notice here it says in verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now who's missing from this family line? Missing Abel, who was murdered. We're missing Cain, who was an unrepentant murderer. And we see that God is still blessing them. He's still remembering the promise that he made all the way back in chapter 3, that even though Adam and Eve had failed God, there would be one who would come and do, do away with sin once and for all. That promise is still alive through their line. And in verse 4, we see the population just begins to explode. Verse 4 says, The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. And so we see this population begin to explode. So why is all that important? Because history shows us who we are in light of God's good purposes. God is a God over time and history. And so God is not just outside of time. He's the God over all time and over all history. And in being that type of God, it means that nothing that ever happens is by accident. Nothing that ever happens is is outside of God's purview, outside of God's will. And and I had a history professor who always used to say that history is really a subcategory of theology. History is a subcategory of the study of who God is because God is a God over time history. And it's hard for us to see this in the rat race of the nine to five when we're just going to work and we're thinking about the moment and we're thinking about today and we're thinking about the fact that we had to move around six times because the sun is shining in our face. Sorry, um, I don't control the windows here. Um, uh, we, 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 we don't, we, that's what we're thinking about. We're thinking about the moment. It's hard for us to see a God who's over everything, a God who is truly working out all things for our glory or for his glory and our good. But when you look at the Bible, you actually see people's entire life story. Here in a couple of weeks, we're going to get to see Abraham, or actually beginning of the year, we're going to get to see Abraham's story over, over decades. We also forget that the events that are happening here are happening over a long period of time for us to see God's faithfulness because in the moment, sometimes it's hard to see it. It's hard to see it when you're having a terrible day. It's hard to see the faithfulness and the love of God when everything seems to be falling apart, but we see through the scriptures, for those who trust him, he works out all things for their good. We even see this in something like the Reformation. Uh, this, this weekend, we celebrate the Reformation the, uh, as, uh, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door. This is not just Halloween weekend, which I, I like Halloween. Don't, I like candy. I think it's a great weekend to love and serve your neighbors. But we also celebrate the Reformation. Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door looking to reform the Catholic Church, but that didn't just happen as an isolated incident. It didn't happen as an isolated event. That is God working out all history for that event to happen, because if you look at that event, there have been other reformers. There have been John Wycliffe, there have been who tried to translate the Bible, not in Latin, but in English and other languages. 
There have been Jan Hus, who uh, was uh, almost 100 years to the date, was being burned at the stake. And by the way, he said, there will one day be a goose, you, this goose may be cooked, which by the way, the word hus means goose, and that's where we get the phrasing, your goose is cooked. He said, you may cook this goose, but there will be one who comes that you can't shut up. And then we see the advent of the printing press, which made the Bible available to many. And we actually saw that at one point with Martin Luther, the German governor couldn't stand the Holy Roman Emperor and was insulating Luther with the ability to be able to spread his ideas. That didn't happen in 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 a silo. That happened because God is the God over all history. And what that tells you and I is that God is with us too. He's with you in the midst of bad days. He's with you in the midst of joys. He's with you in the midst of your mistakes and your stumblings. We need to think back on how God brings us through difficult circumstances. How has God worked all those things out for you? The second thing genealogies does is is they connect us to a people. They, They help us see that we are interconnected as people. This would have been written by Moses for the Hebrew people. He was writing this to a people who were coming out of slavery, who were coming out of exile in Egypt. And he goes, I want you to be reminded of who you are. I want to connect you to this family line, to this history. I want you to understand that you have a, we have a common relative in Adam and and there's a purpose to this life, that God is going to be with us. He's going to redeem us and he's going to do it through this people. Now, a few things may jump out to you when you look at this passage. These people are really, really old, right? We see ages of like 800 years, 930 years, and 912, and we see all these people, you know, Adam, Seth, Enosh, uh, Kenan, so on and so forth. We see all of them, and they are really, really old. And so we need to, we're going to get more into this, by the way, on, on the 20th. We're going to do a, a Q&A after the service downstairs. Bring all your weird Genesis questions. We'll try to answer them the best we possibly can. Um, so we'll go into more detail then, but there really are two possibilities I want to unpack here. When we come to something like this in, in Genesis, we have to approach it with humility. I think we approach it with conviction. I think we approach it with what we believe is the best interpretation. But we also come open-handed saying, you know what, I'm, I'm willing to un- wrestle with this. And, you know, so you don't have to necessarily believe one of these to be orthodox. One possibility is these people just lived a really long time. That They just lived longer than you and I lived. The world was different then. It wasn't that far away from the fall. And one way to think about it is that maybe the full effects of the fall hadn't, just hadn't gotten there yet. They were just slowly encroaching. It's a little bit like if you unplug your refrigerator. Anybody ever had that happen to you? Or I guess the thing gets tripped or the power goes out. Does the meat immediately spoil? No, it, it takes a little bit of time. But if you were a little bit later on to stick a package of meat in the refrigerator, it would spoil faster. It may be that just eventually, it just took a little bit longer for the full effects of the fall to happen. And we see in chapter 6, verse 3, God limits the days of people, and he says that his days shall be 120 years, which seems to be the, the long end of a lifespan for people. The other possibility is that this is an open genealogy, um, that there are actually gaps in the genealogy and that the years are representing an unsaid group of people. And so in ancient times, it wasn't as important to be linear. They, they weren't as much about you know, dotting the I and crossing the T and be, as we are in the West. But they were highlighting these important patriarchs who would have kind of been over an era of time. Now, the important part for us as we engage in this with humility is to understand that these are historical figures. They're not, this isn't myth. If you look at the New Testament, and both in Luke and in Matthew, these are people listed in the name in the genealogy of Jesus. If you look in Luke's genealogy, it tracks all the way back to Adam, who was described to be the son of God. The other idea is that both of these actually do account for population growth. 
And so there's a refrain you look at after each one of these, these patriarchs, it says, and he had other sons and daughters. Now, they only mentioned the one because that's who the inheritance would go through. But it's possible through one guy just having lots of kids. It's like, you know, it's like he'd have a reality show today. It just has lots of children. Um, it's possible over hundreds of years or that through a collective of people, population grew. Now, I want to caution you in this. Don't run to the easy solution. Don't just run to the solution that says, well, logically, I just know in the world people don't live that long, so I'm just going to go with what appears to be the easier interpretation. Don't take the easiest road. If God wanted people to live hundreds of years, guess what he can do? They can live hundreds of years. He can change how that worked over time. He's the one who sustains life. One other thing we see is that this connects Adam to Noah. There's a connection here from creation to recreation to everything being judged and God kind of starting over. There are 10 generations listed here. And if these ages are literal, we see something interesting. Noah's father, Lamech, would have known Adam. He would have been able to hear Adam's stories and hear how initially they felt. Can you imagine that family reunion? It's like, did the fruit look that good, really? Like, you got us into this mess. We also see that all of them died before the flood. What's really interesting, if you trace the years out, is Methuselah died, would have died the same year that the flood happened. Pretty, pretty amazing to look at. But we see that God, went through this, was sustaining a people leading up to Noah as a rescuer. And we look at the first five, from Seth to Jared. We see Seth, we see Enosh, Kenan, Mahalel, all the way up to Jared. And you don't see a whole lot said about them. It's really, it almost reads like an obituary. These long lives captured in a few words. We see their name, we see the children that they had, how long they lived, and that they all died. Every single one of them. It reads like an obituary or a headstone. And this really strikes me in a couple of ways. One is that our lives get really frantic with stuff. Our lives get really frantic with busyness and deadlines and and practices we need to get to, and the emails we have to respond. But at the end of your life, no one's going to say, man, you know what? She was really good at responding to her boss's emails. No one's going to say that. No one's going to say, man, like you made every single practice and every single game on time, and you brought the juice boxes. No one's doing that. No one's going to do any of that. We give so much of our time to things that do not matter, and we have to really slow down and ask ourselves, are we giving ourselves to things that are eternal? Are we giving ourselves to things that matter in the long run? The second thing I see is that no one is unimportant. Obscurity does not mean insignificance. And as Bostonians, that may be our greatest fear, is to be obscure, to seem in significance, because we're willing to be lonely. We're willing to sacrifice relationships. We're willing to even be poor as long as people think we're important. As long as our lives matter, as long as we're doing something that we think will last for eternity. But I love the way Scotty Smith says this. He says, for the rest of our days in the world, we will either be spent pursuing trifles, trivialities, and trophies, or we'll spend ourselves on things that won't last, matter little, and are about us, or we will invest ourselves in living out the implications of the gospel, offering the first fruit of Jesus' kingdom on earth, and serving the least and lost in our midst. That's it. Another thinker said that Jesus lived for 30 years in obscurity, and are we willing to do the same? 
But God uses our faithful, quiet obedience for his glory. He used men's lives who nothing more was written about them than when, who they were, how many kids they had, how long they lived, and when they died. So can we go to work tomorrow knowing we can love and serve our coworkers with grace? Can we imagine ourselves in our apartment complex or on our block living in such a way that we don't just live to get by, we don't just live to make sure that our neighbor cuts their grass or picks up, puts their trash cans back in time, but we actually get to exhibit the love of Jesus? We also see God preserving a people for himself. We see that he's faithful through generations. And this is obviously a righteous family. If you look back at the end of chapter 4 with Seth, we saw at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So we see a a certain faithfulness in in their family. We see this even evidenced by Enoch. It says in verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. That seems incredible, right? So you see all this death, 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 death. He didn't die. This is this foreshadowing of the life that you and I will one day have with Jesus, where we won't, we may physically die, but we will live with God forever. We see this, this intimacy that he has with God. We see Methuselah living the longest life recorded in the Bible, and then we come to Lamech. Now, if you were here with us a couple weeks ago, that name sounds really familiar, we saw Cain, his descendant Lamech, who, who married two wives and was a murderer and was a vengeful man. And we come to verses 28 and 29, and we see Lamech, a man not wanting revenge, but a man wanting peace, wanting relief. It says in verse 28, he talks of his son Noah, who he named Noah. He said, out of the ground that the Lord had cursed, that this one shall bring relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. He named his son Noah, which means rest or relief. What's amazing about that is in the Bible, oftentimes people would name them, their kids as a prophecy. They would name their kids over what they hoped they would be. Uh, when we were trying to name our oldest daughter, Lily, we, we found this really beautiful Hebrew name. And I looked up the name and it meant balding goat. And I was like, we're not going to do that. I don't want to prophesy that over her. Uh, Noah, his dad, had a better understanding of, of, of old, old Hebrew. And, and we see Lamech is longing for relief because for 10 generations... Spanning thousands of years, we see people had experienced the curse of the ground. They'd experienced how hard work was, and this had shaped them as a people, and they're longing for redemption. They're remembering and hearing these tales of the one who would crush the serpent's head being passed down. And so God preserves through this family, through this line, the possibility of a savior. We see Noah, which we'll talk about more next week. And he preserved this line, this people, in the midst of a broken world. If you look at the end of chapter 4, we see Cain's line, which is never mentioned again. They're violent people. They're self-sufficient people. And then you look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, which we'll come to in a minute, and we see that the world is just kind of spinning out of control. But yet, in the middle of that, God sustains a people. What that tells you and I is that even in the midst of a broken world, we can follow and honor God. We can walk with Him with intimacy. We can walk with him in such a way that we long for relief to come because God is the one who sustains us. So this genealogy with a broken world as the background also shows us something else. It shows us clearly who we are. It clearly shows us as we are. Now we live in the age of the internet and smartphones and there's just, I don't understand how anyone gets away with anything anymore. You're always being videoed. You're always a chance of you ending up on TikTok and it being bad news. 
But one of the greatest evidences for the truthfulness of the Bible to me is the fact that the writers tell on themselves. They don't make themselves look better than they are. What should have happened, if you were just trying to make yourself look good, is chapter 6 would begin, and Noah's family finally got it right, and they finally overcame the curse, and they just lived good lives, and there were moral people, and God relented. But it doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say that. We actually see the consequences of sin and the compounding debt of sin continue on. It says, if you look at chapter 5, it says, and he died nine times. And he died, and he died, and he died. The consequences of sin is death. That God will justly judge sin one day. That as good as these people were, they were sinners. As good as these people were, they were never going to be able to do enough to make themselves right before God. And so what we often imagine is, is, is human progress is that what we're going to do is one day we're going to outwork our deepest problem. We're going to outwork human brokenness. And so we're, we're, going to have, we're going to find the right medicine, we're going to find the right, the, right, you know, the right therapy, we're going to find the right friendships, we're going to find the right neighborhood, we're going to find the right career, and what we're going to do is we're just going to outwork what's wrong with us, but the problem is, is we all know it doesn't work, because everything's decaying. Nothing is ever quite enough. Everything is dying. We're always trying to overcome it. Why do we constantly have to improve our bodies to look younger and to get stronger? Why are we constantly doing home maintenance or why on our car? If you've ever driven a car in New England, you know your suspension is shot. We, are, we live in a broken world. And we see at the beginning of chapter 6, this is when man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them. We see that as population increases, sin increases. It became more and more evident and it was easier to see. And so it's like when, in a city, it doesn't mean that we're more sinful. It just means it's easier to see. The greater population density, the more people that there actually are. In fact, if you look at murder rates in rural places compared to cities, it's almost identical. It's an opportunity to see all sorts of ways that we tend to live apart from God's will. And here's where we do run into kind of some interpretive hairballs. There are some things here that people go, what in the world are we looking at? Who are the sons of God and who are the Nephilim? This, this is, the, again, great questions for the 20th. But I do want to try to explain these very briefly. There are three options on, on who interpreters believe that the sons of God are. One is people believe that they are angels. Often in the Bible, sons of God are referred to as, uh, uh, angels are referred to as sons of God. So angels had relations with human women and created these giant Nephilim. The second are these tyrant kings, these despots who would use and abuse women in such a way that they were, they were doing that. And then the third way is that this is actually just Seth's line and that they were uh, you know, continuing to marry in the world. And so if, if the Nephilim comes from angels having offspring with women, they become these giant offspring. But I actually believe that the more likely interpretation of this is these are just genetically superior people. They're just very large, giant people. Because have you ever met a pro athlete? They're humongous. I, I mean, one time I met Heath Evans, who played fullback for the Patriots. He also played at Auburn, which is my favorite college football team. The dude is this wide. Like, I'm a big guy. He dwarfed me. He's almost twice as wide as me. I mean, have you ever watched basketball players? Like, when I imagine Goliath, I just imagine LeBron James. I imagine a very large human. And we've even seen people get up to that height in history. I believe the writers didn't identify the Nephilim as, as exactly what they were because they would have known, the people reading this would have known who they were. 
It's like if you're a baseball fan and I say murderer's row, you know that I'm talking about the 27 Yankees, which had probably, and I hate the Yankees, probably the greatest lineup in baseball history. It's like Hall of Famer after Hall of Famer after Hall of Famer. We see these giant men who are described as mighty men of old, people who have done things uh, with re- these, uh, the men of, of renown. These are people that people would have looked to as heroes, told great stories about legends of these people, and they seemed bigger than life, and we still do the same thing. We give honor and glory to people for their beauty. Why do the Kardashians have a TV show? I don't know. Millions of people watch it. Why do we care more about accomplishments than we do character? We don't really care whether Ty Cobb or Babe Ruth or whoever were good people. We just know they could hit a baseball. We know they could dunk a ball. We know that they could run really fast. We see these people who are legends. And what's being described here in Genesis chapter 6 is these people who are intermarrying in such a way that there's no regard for godliness. They're just going, man, this person looks good. We're going to get married. And there's, in verse 4, a type of human prideful achievement that has no concern for God's glory. And the type of achievements that you and I honor are just great accomplishments. But God sees this in verse 5, and God saw wickedness. He saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, meaning outward wickedness, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, meaning inward wickedness. When was the last time the Bible described God as seeing something? When he saw creation, he said creation was good or creation was very good. And here we see God seeing wickedness and declaring destruction. We see people living contrary to how God had created them, becoming, as Lyle uh, Esslinger says, the attempt by man to become more than he is results in his becoming less. And what this shows us is that we're never going to figure it out. We're never going to educate our way out of this. We're never going to strategize or out-effort our way through this. And our sinfulness, what verse 6 says, is that God grieved over it. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. God was grieved. And the word regret there doesn't mean regret like you and I have regret. God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. But it's like when you say you're sorry, but it's not actually your fault. You're just sorry that it happened. Okay, and Matthew says that God's response of grief over the making of humanity, however, is not remorse in the sense of sorrow over a mistaken creation. Our verse shows that God's gain or God's pain has its source in the perversion of human sin. The making of man is no error, it is what man has made of himself. God has sorrow because God is not an emotionless robot. But God's emotions, the way we experience them, his emotions are always correct. They're always appropriate. God is grieved over sin. And it shows the reason that our sin is so offensive to a good and holy God. It grieves him because it breaks his heart. Why do I try not to hurt my wife? It's not because there's a set of rules that say that I shouldn't. So, well, you know, here are the rules, and I shouldn't do these things, so I shouldn't leave my laundry all over the place, and I should be faithful. So don't do these things, because if I don't do these things, I'm going to get in trouble. Why do, I, why, why do I want to please my wife? Because I love her. Why should we want to please God? Because we love Him. Because He's loved us. 
Because love motivates faithfulness. And what did Jesus say? If you love me, you'll obey my commands. And what is being expressed through all the ways that people are living is that they don't love God. They love themselves and their desires and their priorities and what they believe is right and good more than they love God. And God's response to this in verse 7, he says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, some may object. That doesn't sound very fair. How, How can God do this. This seems unfair that God would judge them for their sins, but this isn't like the mythical gods who would get mad on a dime. How long had God been patient with them? For thousands of years. For thousands of years. In fact, it should be more shocking to us that the people lived this long. And God does actually, it's amazing. We see his, his, his patience with them. In fact, verse 3 is actually pretty amazing because his day shall be 120 years. It was actually 120 years from there to the flood as well, which we'll cover next week. We see sin's seriousness, that it grieves the heart of God and that it deserves judgment and punishment. And so we have to see ourselves as we are. We have to see how evil our hearts can be. We have to see how this grieves God. But if we're honest, we often look at other people's lives and we think that God should deal with their evil. Deal with their evil. Deal with the evil out there, not the evil in here. We don't see ourselves as evil. What about our thoughts that no one knows? What about the fact, have you ever hated someone? Or held a grudge against someone? What about your lust? What about wanting to something so badly that you would do anything to get it? But but we have to see how bad we actually are. We have to see how desperate we actually are so that we can see that God's grace is our only hope. Look at verse 8. But, the big eraser, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace. He found undeserved favor. Why did God choose Noah? Noah was a gracious, he was a really righteous guy, but Alan Ross says it is not that Noah was the most righteous person on the earth, and so God decided to save him. No, he was a sinner, and God saved him from the judgment by his grace. God chose Noah because he's gracious. And what did Noah do? Noah put his faith in God's graciousness. Even Enoch, who lived who never died again. Hebrews 11 says that by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. How did Enoch please God? By trusting in his grace, by acting on the the graciousness of God. How did God save humanity through Noah? Through Noah putting his faith and his trust in the grace of God. And it is no different for you or I. The only way to be saved, the only way to be rescued is through the grace of Jesus, by putting our faith in him. But the truth is we have a better savior than Noah. We have a better hope than even Enoch because God's genealogy, his family line runs past Noah and it runs all the way to Jesus. And when it lands on Jesus, what that means is that sinful and perfect people like you and I can trust in the grace of God that he's given us, Jesus, to redeem us. And by faith that you can be grafted in, adopted into that family line and experience the blessings of being a part of God's people. Let's pray. 